This is Star Talk. Welcome to Star Talk. I am Dr. Natalie Starkey, and this is Star Talk All Stars. Today, I'm going to be your all star host. And joining me as a co host, I have comedian Chuck Nice. Hey, Natalie. Well, yeah, Natalie. 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 Nice to see you. Good to Thank see you, you too. for coming in. Um, a so, today, the plan is to field some fan questions about our, our topic today in you know, the cosmic queries. Um, yes. We're going to be looking at the topic of the Rosetta mission. Yes. Really exciting. It very much is an exciting mission. Very close to my heart. I'm it's, sure it is. Kind of what I've been doing for my research the last few years. Um, and so I'm excited to talk about Rosetta. Very excited. And I'm also more excited mm-hmm. to introduce our, our guest today, joining us via Skype. Um, and it is Dr. Matt Taylor. Dr. Matt Taylor. Yes. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for having me. That's all right. Um, now, Matt, you are the project scientist for the European Space Agency Rosetta mission. This is quite an exciting title. I wish I had your job, but you are really, really busy. So I don't envy you for the amount of travel and talks you're currently doing. But um, it's so good to have you here. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. It is a bit, a bit hectic at the moment, surely. So explain to us, there's a lot going on, right? So we've had uh, the Rosetta mission launched, I mean, over 10 years ago now, right? And uh, it's been traveling to this comet. It was traveling to a comet for all of this time. It had to catch up with this comet, get onto the same orbit, which is no small matter in itself. Right. And then in 2014, it actually caught up with the comet, went into orbit around it. First time ever we've done this. Yes. And then not only that, a couple of months later, landed, landed. a spacecraft on a comet, which on is just the best thing ever. Ever. And, you know, first time we've ever done this. Um, it was successful, a soft landing. There was a little bit of a bumpy ride um, right. until it came to rest. But, you know, it's done science. It did it f- its first science sequence as planned. And then since then, the little lander, little fillet lander, as it's fillet. called. That's correct. Um, is asleep. It's gone to sleep. It's gone to sleep. That was happened to it. Is that the scientist way of saying that it's now on a farm with your grandmother? <laughs> What do you mean when you wow. say it's gone to sleep? How, what's happening? Don't you guys try to tell me something? <laughs> the, prob- the problem with it, it's like Schrodinger's lander. We can't really tell. Ah, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I got because you. We can't go up to the comet and kick it to see if it's still alive. Uh, right. We just It's uh, highly unlikely to be uh, able to function anymore at the moment due to power limitations, due to it, the fact that it's moving away from the sun. Right. But... Yeah, as, as Natalie said, we, we carried out the first science sequence. We carried out the, the main part of the science. Uh, it, was, it did what it was supposed to do, which was to go into hibernation. Um, and it's just because it did this extra little uh, leap across the comet that it was put into a situation or a location where um, it, it took a bit longer to come out of hibernation than originally planned. Mm-hmm. I think you guys were just being cheeky, though, because you were like, we want to land on a comet, but hey, wait a minute, we're going to land three times, not once, yeah. you know, we're going to just do it all in one go. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny enough, the origi- one of the original lander proposals, uh, I think this is by uh, Helmut Rosenbaum, the, the kind of main father of the lander mission itself, was to have a comet hopper that was jumping around that would go to one place and then go somewhere else, and it was as if that 
ethos was somehow impregnated into the lander that it wasn't happy enough to be in one place. It wanted to go somewhere yeah, else. Like it, so it knew. Like, it was like, I like that proposal. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. But it's kind of crazy because, you know, comets have like so little gravity. These things are right. relatively small compared to, you know, one of the planets. So it's just really lucky that it didn't, on one of these bounces... Just bounce completely off completely. and just go, yeah. right? It would Because that could have yeah. been a scenario where it, really it bounced off mm. and it, it would have been lost forever at that point, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There'd be no way of getting it. It had no power itself, the, right. the lander, so it couldn't have got itself yeah. back. It couldn't have gone back. Yeah, so wow. that, that would have been a bad... It clipped one of the kind of cliffs or whatever you want to call some of the features on the surface of the comet, and I think without that... Um, it had lost a little bit more momentum, and without that little clip that it made, it may have had a little bit too much momentum on one of the bounces and ended up going over the edge, and that was it. It would have been lost. So, yeah. luck so was there. we were lucky. We we got it. We got some science, which I'd love to discuss if we've got time today. Um, but you know, it's it's still there. But it woke up, right? The lander did wake up again in was it July last year or something? Yeah, it's June July time period. But we never got a a, a full uh, accurate signal lock with it. There was there were some issues. We never really got in, uh, in in talking terms with it properly. Right. But it's really it's important to know. I have to know that this isn't the only part of the mission. Uh, this gets forgotten that it, the, the Rosetta mission is more than the sixty hours of uh, data taking that we had with Philae. That we were, and the majority of the science is being done by the orbiter and remains being done by the orbiter. Says the um, physicist. I have to point out. out because all the physics experiments are on the orbiter. Okay. I'm a geologist, so I'm like, right. I want to be on right, the. Comet, you want to be on you know? the comet and pulling up samples and yeah, yeah, getting exactly, something back and here's getting exactly readings. Right. The orbiter is still functioning. And, All right. Um, so, uh, Matt, when with respect to the orbiter, um, what kind of data are you looking to receive? And uh, as it orbits this comet on its journey, is it just primarily looking at the comet, or is it surveying the uh, the you know what's around the comet and where the comet is going? Are both of those things happening, or one of those things, or what? It's doing both. Rosetta itself, the key aspect was that unlike any other mission we'd done before to a comet, uh, we were going to stay with the comet. So as Natalie said before, we rendezvoused and we got in the same orbit as the comet. And we've been doing that for over two years now. Uh, so we got in, in step with the comet and we've seen how the comet has evolved in time. As it gets closer to the sun, it was becoming more and more active, throwing more material off. We've been monitoring the comet and we've been observing the comet, both the nucleus and the outer atmosphere, and how that actually, in addition, how that interacts with the outer atmosphere of the sun as well. So the whole, you know, the whole nine yards, that's what we've been looking at. We've really been uh, looking, the whole thing about the Rosetta mission is to study this comet as uh, in-depth as possible. And with the lander, we get the ground truth of these measurements. Wow. But with the orbiter, we get the global view and we match those together. That was the key aspect of this. We do the majority of the science with the orbiter, but the, the lander was there. Philae was there to get on the ground and give us the ground truth to really dig in and, and, and let scientists like Natalie, who like to, you know, dig and, and scrape in and, and sniff and I taste do. things. It's good. So, so, yeah, she, yeah, she's always rolling around and playing in the mud. <laughs> <laughs> but Matt, what I wanted to just mention is the end of the mission because it's going to be a really sad time for all of us I imagine more so for the guys that are really heavily involved um, on the mission side but mm. the end is coming it's this year the end is near the end is very near oh my um, and there are some really crazy plans of how this mission is going to end um, and it involves essentially crashing this orbiter that's doing all this amazing science with all these very expensive instruments on board crashing this thing into the comet 
Okay, now, um, that sounds, Matt, very much like when I was a kid, I would build a giant Lego castle and then kick it down. Why is that the end of the mission? What is going on with you guys? I'm like, you know, I've always wanted to break stuff. <laughs> really expensive <laughs> things. Uh, no, it, the, the problem we have is the comet is moving away through Keplerian motion. It's moving away from the sun. Now, the spacecraft is orbiting around or, or is in the same orbit. That's moving away from the sun as well, losing the capability of generating power. So we'll get to a situation where we would have to put it into hibernation. We had to do that before because it moved so far away from the sun anyway. And because of the orbit the spacecraft is now in with the comet, it would freeze. Uh, we're also running out of fuel. We'll have no fuel left soon. And the best thing to do was to end the mission um, in around September, October time. Actually, the reason for that is we get to a time where the solar energy is reducing, but also we go into a, a conjunction with the sun. So the signal that we're getting from the spacecraft is very minimal at that time period. So we kind of thought the end of September would be a good time to close the mission off. Now, we could have just switched the mission off or do something more extravagant. And the more extravagant thing has been to control, uh, have, carry out a controlled impact with a comet. A controlled impact, yeah. sorry, impact. not a crash. Yes, yes. Oh, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's what I tried to tell my insurance company about my last controlled impact with another car. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love this idea because it means on the way down, um, the instruments are still going to be on and they're going to get tons of information as they go down because this will be the closest we've ever been with the orbiter, obviously, right. having not crashed it into the comet yet. They've done some amazing maths to work out. Sorry, math. All right, I'm in the States now. Yes, I forget. Yes, math. Yeah, um, yeah we've done some, some very clever math to work out how to orbit around this thing uh -huh. because it's not kind of, it's haven't really got enough gravity for an orbiter to just orbit. Right. Kind of it's, it's not going to be in a gravitational tractor pull. A little bit, but it's been in powered flight a lot of the time. So okay. it's like, you do, don't want to get too close, but this comet is also active. So it's got material streaming off the surface. So you don't want to get that orbiter too close and be hit by dust I, coming right, particles coming So off of this is like our best chance to get close, get some really detailed images of the surface. I think, you know, one pixel, is that going to be a meter or better than that um do we hope oh, we'll get much i think once we get to within 10 kilometers we we get we go sub meter 50 centimeters 10 centimeters uh we're going to get very high resolution images once we get down to that level really um, yeah. yeah and and yeah. so as you take this uh as you capture these images uh, and you're still in orbit around the comet as it's doing its controlled impact uh, if, are you going to be surveying all parts of the comet, like kind of going around it and taking pictures like a, you know, like a radio camera, like is that is will that be the is that the case that that final what we're calling the last words of rosetta is actually still being dis well i wouldn't say discussed is being calculated because although all that this comet is uh, very low density uh, and has a weak gravitational attraction it still has gravity so the orbiter actually is now in a bound orbit we're at about i think it's 26 by 20 kilometer orbit we will go closer and closer and closer we'll get below 10 kilometers and once we get to below 10 kilometers things get very complicated because of this duck like duck like structure and so we have a very weird gravitational potential once we get down to that so we'll have to put it in a special orbit and really be careful at how we control the spacecraft around that time and we will feel perturbations of, of, of that gravity 
and we will be continuing to try and do as many measurements as possible once we get close by. Now, those final words, as we, you know, we're talking about the last day of Rosetta, what we do there is still being discussed, still being fine-tuned. We believe it will be some kind of a resting maneuver from a, a, peris a close pericenter um, orbit. So we'll have like a maybe an, an, uh, an elliptic orbit um, that goes within about one, one kilometer maybe at the surface, maybe even lower, depending again on what we're doing in September. And then we'll inject towards the comet and just set ourselves up to be able to take data as close as possible. Now, the priority will be the imager, but also the mass spectrometer to sniff everything as close as possible. We'll, we'll have other instruments operating, but when we start getting to low power during that period, we really have to say, right, these are the priority instruments, getting those images, getting the high resolution images, and also the high resolution spe spectra from this mass spectrometer that's and sniffing that the gas. Me. Yes. That's, that's that excites me. That does excite me. I is. love mass spectrometer. And is there, is there <laughs> any um, <clears throat> anticipation as to what the comet will smell like? Because I'm hoping jasmine. <laughs> It is far from nice. Uh, we already know eggy, how horrible this thing smells. Yeah, it's, 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 there's alcohol on it. It's it's like a kind of a Friday night uh, in a bar area in any city in the US or the Britain or wherever. It's, are you, it's like a are you telling me this comet will smell like a drunken fart? Yeah, pretty Basically. much. Basically, yeah. yeah, that's it. yeah. It's, it's not probably not fun. not a good place to be. <laughs> It smells like Jersey. <laughs> I can so, say that. I live there. Okay. We should probably move on to some of these fan yes. questions. Because we've been oh, nattering on about No, that was, a, that was a ton of fun. And, get, and honestly, that, I want to get some questions. Yeah, we should get some questions yeah. without a doubt. But I'm so happy that we had that conversation. Yeah. Because now I know that uh, basically we spent a billion dollars to find out that a comet smells like a fart. <laughs> Quite frankly, that was worth my tax dollars. Okay. Please. <laughs> All right, guys, let us uh, go to our cosmic queries where we have taken questions from all over the internet and every different incarnation where Star Talk exists. And um, I am going to uh, start off with Greg Fisher from Facebook. And Greg says this Are we planning any other missions to any other comets? Is there any specific interest in landing on one of the asteroids in between Mars and Jupiter or in the Oort? cloud oh this is a great question. that is a very good question this greg very good question thank you i this is oh i love this subject there's so much to talk about but i'll try and i'll keep it fairly short so we're not planning any missions to comets at the moment, unfortunately, but we are planning some missions to some asteroids. Now, these are not in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter because it's quite a long way to go. Right. What we do is we wait for these asteroids to be knocked out of the asteroid belt and join us in the inner solar system. So these become near-Earth asteroids. So now, let me just, uh, I'm, I'm not infringing on your question, Greg, but... How do we know when an asteroid is going to get knocked out of the asteroid belt? We don't know when, but we, I don't think we can tell when anyway, but I'm probably not the right person to ask, but we know when they have been knocked out and okay. we know we can trace the orbit so we can, we can observe them in space. And we have a whole list of near-Earth asteroids and we have a list of those that are on potentially Earth-crossing orbits. These are the ones that we need to worry about and we, we keep an eye on them um, and we check, you know, that we need to just really define the orbit really carefully and work out. And, and gradually these fall off the list because most of them end up not, you know, as we work out a little bit more where they're going, they're not going to hit us. But there's a few that we want to go and visit with space missions because they're 
kind of easy to get to because they're already on a better orbit. We don't have to go as far. Um, there's the NASA OSIRIS-REx mission, which is launching this year. It should be launching this year. And it's going to approach uh, an asteroid called Bennu in uh, 2018, I believe. And it's going to be collecting samples to bring back to Earth, which is pretty much probably just the second time that's happened. Uh, the Japanese had a mission called mm -hmm. Hayabusa that did this a couple of years ago. I've worked on some of those samples. Okay. Tiny little dust samples from this asteroid. But there's also um, uh, uh, the Hayabusa 2 mission, which is another Japanese one. It's already been launched. And that is going to another asteroid, near-Earth asteroid, and collecting hopefully collecting samples again. So we have a couple that we're going to. In terms of getting to the Oort cloud, collecting samples, that's not going to happen. It's just so, so far away. Again, we need to wait for one of these comets to be knocked into the inner solar system for us to, to go to it, like we did with Rosetta and 67P. It came to us, so it makes it a lot easier. The Oort cloud is just an immense distance away that uh, it would be... Yeah, we'll, we'll never get there, I don't think. <laughs> okay. Not in our lifetimes. All right. Oh, well, Greg, that's a, that is a great, great uh, question. Because uh, uh, this is a cool question. Do you know what, Chuck? We actually need to take a break. Okay, well, so then I'm not we... going to read this then. Can we come back? Can you save it till uh -huh. after the break? No, that's it. We've, oh, you've ruined the show. We've ruined it now. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so we are going to take a short break, but we'll be right back with StarTalk All-Stars. Welcome back to StarTalk All-Stars. I am Natalie Starkey, and I still have here with me Chuck Nice, who's going to be asking me some more cosmic queries. And I've got Matt Taylor on hand from the European Space Agency to help answer some of the questions if yes. I can't answer them. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's, uh, let's jump right back into our cosmic queries. And uh, let's, uh, let's go to Josefina Aquiero. Uh, yes, yes. Aquiero in Waltham, Massachusetts. Okay. And uh, Josephina wants to know this. She says, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Rosetta Mission and Star Talk. Aren't we all? Oh, there you go. There we go. <laughs> that just means you're smart, Josephina. That's all that means. Uh, I'm a chemist by trade, and I was wondering what the implications would be of a Rosetta finding that a, only left-handed amino acids were found on Comet 67P, or B, only right-handed amino acids, or C, a racemic mixture, i.e. equal amounts of both. Hey. Now, before you and Matt <laughs> go totally geek boner crazy... <laughs> <laughs> on this question, you're going to have to tell us what all of that means. What it all means. I have no idea what Josephina is talking about, but it's an opportunity for me to learn something. Okay, so we'll kick off with the fact that we want to look for organic material in space. And I think this is kind of what the question's getting at. Are we looking for organic material in this comet? Well, yes, we are. There's quite a few instruments on the orbiter and lander that are looking for these features and trying to detect carbon molecules. Now, in terms of looking for anything more advanced than that, if we're talking DNA, I don't think there's anything that can look for that. But if we come back a step before we get to DNA, we've got amino acids which form from carbon molecules. And these are what we would refer to as the basic building blocks for life. Okay. So we kind of need these to get life started, we think. Um, and our bodies contain loads of amino acids right. and we found amino acids in space before. We found them in asteroids, um, meteorites that land on the surface as pieces of asteroids. We found lots and lots of amino acids. So we know that the building blocks are out there. Now with Rosetta, 
we're not looking for these specifically, but there are a couple of instruments that are trying to detect carbon compounds. Now, I'm going to pass over to Matt because he can now tell us a little bit about what some of those instruments have found because it's quite recent research that's just come out. Oh, we're getting um, breaking news here. Yep, it is definitely. So, nice. yeah, Matt, there's a couple of instruments on the lander that have found some interesting stuff related to the organic material. Yeah, um, both Ptolemy, so Open University Instrument, also Cossack from uh, from Germany, were focusing on this specifically. Now, from my knowledge, and now remember, I'm a plasma physicist, so this is on the <laughs> edge of my, uh, my my comfort zone, as it were. I know that we did find a lot of organic material. We could see that organic material. This is carbon-based material. The comet is really, really dark. It, it's it's very, very black. It reflects less than five percent of the sunlight that uh, that is uh, input to it. So. That really tells you that we have this very carbon-rich material on the surface, and as I was saying before, the you know this this ground-level uh, taste of the, of the comet was what we needed from from uh, Philae, and that's what it got, even with the bouncing across the surface of the comet, and we had samples. Well, I'm, I'm trying to remember actually. I think Cossack. If, if up is the top of the lander and down is the bottom of the lander, I think Cossack was pointing down yep. and, and Ptolemy, Ptolemy was pointing was up. up. Exactly, yeah. And so they kind of got this fractional um, sample of, of the atmosphere in the near surface. So Cossack actually got the dust that was kicked up from the from the surface and really got some nice um, uh, nitrogen and carbon-rich compounds. I think there were four compounds that were ne have never been seen before, uh, and these are associated, I think, again, on the edge of my memory, uh, with ribose, which is a sugar which then is, you know, again, a building block of uh, or can be connected to amino acids and DNA. So that was seen on the bottom with Cossack, and on the top it was more of the coma material, more of the gaseous material that we were seeing in the atmosphere. And so we were able to see that and, and distinguish the different components uh, from from the lander. Yeah. On the orbit, we have Rosina that's got this fantastic uh, array of instruments that do mass spectrometry and can sample material there. They've been looking at um, uh, more. Well, we've we've had record or, or uh, instances of seeing uh, different. Uh, well, we were talking about it before the methane, etc. And we hope to get some. Uh, more information on that soon. That's all I'm... <laughs> oh, we have an insight here. Right. This is exciting. Uh, this is cool. But it's great because... Okay, well, it's great because all the different instruments have done slightly different things. Um, and actually, they don't all necessarily agree, which is quite interesting. So well, now, what, what do you mean by that? Because that sounds... Uh, that, that sounds it very sounds contradictory, yeah, yeah, and it um, sounds worrisome. Uh, what do you mean that they don't all particularly agree? Well, basically, because they're measuring different things. As okay. Matt was saying, the COSAC instrument is measuring the composition of basically the rock of, of the comet, right. because it's right at the surface. Right. Whereas the Ptolemy, so it, it saw nitrogen compounds and things, right. and then Ptolemy was measuring the gases around that, so it didn't actually measure any nitrogen. We don't really know why. Maybe the nitrogen wasn't kicked up high enough so right. that Ptolemy didn't get it into its its mass spectrometer. Um, but it measured lots of carbon dioxide. So we know there's a lot of carbon there. Uh, right. They agree on some things, but then you've got Rosina, which is way outside of the comet, looking at the coma and everything outside of that. And that's, you know, obviously got different results, but I'm sure they'll be complementary. It's just you're looking at different parts. It's a complex No, it's not system. that they don't agree. It's that they're measuring different they're things. Measuring different things, okay. yeah. And those things don't always just perfectly mesh. No. We have to put all of these little bits of data together and build up our picture of the comet because it's an active system. You okay. know, we've got to understand what it's doing as it goes towards the sun, how it's getting heated up and how that's affecting the different molecules on, on it. Okay. So, yeah. But, but the one thing that we can say, Matt, is that it's not broken. So it's not like it's measuring 
different things because no, it's not no, working. No, no, I, I, one thing that I recall is when I <laughs> what I want to know is, are you wasting my money? <laughs> no, 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 no. These, are, these are highly intricate instruments, but one has to recall. And, and, and I remember talking to a colleague of mine who uh, was an undergraduate with me when I was in Liverpool University, and he remembers mass spectrometers being as big as a room. And I think Natalie, you know, you, I remember uh, talking to you at OU with these big machines. Yeah. Now, you can't fly something that big in space, so you have to miniaturize the instrument. And I'm not saying the, the instrument, well, it has less capability. It's still a fantastic instrument, but you've miniaturized it. So it has um, a limited capability compared to something on Earth. So there's a limitation in what you can do. So you have to make assumptions on the observations that you're making. So the spectra have, you know, when you're looking at a mass spectrum, there are bumps and wiggles and lines everywhere that could be various different compounds that this thing's sniffing. Yes. And you have to make assumptions based on your understanding in general of what they are. So it's really, you're doing the best you can with an instrument that's been packed in from a room size instrument to something as big as or smaller than a shoebox yeah wow it is amazing that's, and because we need the instruments to be light right because we've got to launch them into space exactly and we need them to be relatively simple because we don't have a human to go up right. there there's, and run you, there's it, no maintenance know. for this if anything goes wrong there's pretty much not anything you can do right. you know you pre-program sequences that it will run and the computer programs and it runs them and if anything goes wrong there's just nothing you can do about it so these things have got to be simple but it doesn't mean they're actually simple you know, right. they're still doing very complicated yeah, it's, science. It, yeah, it's it's physicist simple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Yeah, it's like you know, you you guys simple is like most people's. I just died of a stroke thinking about it. And they also have a, a, another version of the instrument on the ground. So the scientists, you know, have been waiting ten years for this to get to the comet. They've actually been able to perform lots of calibration experiments on their version that they've got, maybe in a, a chamber that's uh, kind of like comet conditions. So right. it's a vacuum and stuff and they can actually run sequences on it to test how that instrument's going to work in space okay so that's important as well there's a lot of work that goes into it and 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 so matt when you're running these calibrations do you then take uh that and make an adjustment to the data that you receive from space uh and and adjust it accordingly to the calibrations that you run here on earth well, yeah, that's what you do. And actually, something that was done based on the Rosetta measurements. So the Rosetta, uh, for this was for Rosina. They made measurements um, with their, their highly advanced instrument. And they were able to actually go back to data that was taken 30 years ago from the Halley mission. Wow. Uh, the Giotto mission at Halley and readdress some of the spectra that were taken there uh, with the instruments there and reanalyze them based on the measurements we have here. So in a kind of cross spacecraft mission calibration as well. So all of this data you can go across and, 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 and cross compare and improve your measurements. That is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's really fascinating stuff. Well, uh, Josephina, uh, let me just tell you, that was an <laughs> incredible question that you gave us yeah. because I mean, who knew that we would get all of that out of this one question? Really fascinating stuff, and and I learned some things there too. That was really great. Wow, I feel like I'm one of the Cosby kids. Like, oh, look at that! I learned something too. Ah, you don't even realize. Okay, all right, I'm going to stop that right now. Just, just to jump in there because the um, Josephina had asked about chirality. Um, oh, yeah. That was one of the measurements we wanted to do on the lander. Uh, with Cossack, and that's the only instrument that could have made this measurement. And this is to look at the hand, the, 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 it's basically the symmetry of the molecules. You can either have left-handed, or sorry, hang on, my left-handed or right-handed. <laughs> 
And you, and again, it's this connection with the material we see in space and how is it connected to life on Earth. And certain things on Earth have a particular chirality and others have a different chirality. And by looking on the comet, we'd be matching and seeing if there is a match between the two. So are the amino acids on the comet left-handed or right-handed, or are they both? And vice versa for other things, sugars and DNA and this kind of thing. And trying to see if there is a connection with those that we're finding on, on Earth. The problem is, um, with the lander, we weren't able to get a sample in the ovens, which was necessary to run a specific part of the COSAC instrument, which was to examine chirality. So without that, now that the lander is most likely not going to function anymore, we have not been able to carry out that measurement. So I just wanted to get back to that, that yeah. part of the question. Oh, nice. Yeah, All it's right. still, it still needs doing. Still so needs doing. Missions. Well, there you go, Josefina. That's, uh, I believe we have thoroughly answered this question yeah. <laughs> uh, from top to We've bottom, in and out. This is, honestly. <laughs> This was uh, this answering this question was like a cosmic proctology exam. <laughs> so let us move on. Okay. <laughs> Look at Matt laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to quote you on that. <laughs> uh, this is Sven uh, Rosandik, or I don't know how to say his last name. I'm sorry, Sven uh, Rosandik. Where's he from? Um, I don't know, but with a name like Sven, I think he's a Viking. So this is what Sven, Sven says. Uh, he doesn't tell us where he's from, but he's writing to us from Facebook. Um, this is what he says. Would it be possible to land a spacecraft such as Rosetta on a comet and then stay in contact with it so that every few years it sends us more information? And so I'm going to add on to that. Uh, with that in mind, would we be able to land on a comet uh, like I'm, just say for instance, like Halley's Comet, which we know leaves our solar system, goes, and then comes back. Yeah, would we be able to uh, do what Sven said, and then get readings from that comet uh, wherever it goes, and then? gather those readings when it comes back to us i mean kind of and it there's there's a lot to say with this answer really it's it's more that yes you could in theory but the problem is when comets get really far away from the earth and the sun it gets really cold okay. and communications take forever so you're going to have to put that spacecraft into hibernation most likely like we did with rosetta as it was trying to catch up with the comet 67p it got very far away right um so it, it had to go into hibernation go to sleep for a couple of years um so you you could do that um you need to leave a little bit on because it needs to stay warm in order for the instruments to actually kind of work otherwise they're just going to completely freeze and, and be broken so if you could do that bring it back in um turn it back on not always that easy when we had to bring Rosetta out of hibernation that was stressful because we didn't know it was going to turn back on it was right. like you know Matt I mean you can probably add something to this I mean I was there watching it on you know the internet feeds but I was stressed you know and it, right. it, we got the signal and it took longer than we thought and I mean it must have been but you were you in mission control for this it, yeah, I was. It was fine. It was. It was fine. Back. He's like, I play it down. There's been That's so much right. happening since then. But I was <laughs> Please, like, piece of cake. Yeah, that was all right. Oh, yeah, it, nothing there to was it. Level of stress. But I mean, we we put the, you know, the best people had designed this to happen. So so we'd done the best job of getting it out of hibernation. Yeah. So, yeah, and as you said, it had been delayed a little bit, but 
uh, in the end, it did come back. In fact, when you talk about stress, the one guy I remember who looked the most stressed was the person that was involved in writing the software for the hibernation exit, and he looked much. Uh, he was the most relieved person in the room. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that would be yeah. Big because moment. at that point, it's all on him, yeah. and you know everybody's going to point their finger, even though they're not physically pointing a finger. They're just like, "Yep, Thomas, yes. totally it, fucked." It, it, yeah. Time. <laughs> I think I would have fainted when that happened. I would exactly. have just been like, you know, oh my goodness. Right? You know it's the truth. It. It's just like, you know what I mean? It's like Alex Rodriguez uh, in the bottom of the ninth and the bases are loaded and you're up to bat. And you know when you strike out, people are just like, what a waste of $30 million. Nobody says, like, it's okay. Everybody says it's okay, but you know what they're really thinking is, dude, you just wasted all of our money and that's yeah. what thomas thanks for the program you screwed us all <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i can imagine that is pretty stressful but yes so in theory matt i think you know we're running out a little bit of time on this segment Are we running so, out? but i think it's kind of possible but it probably isn't the most important thing okay. for us to be trying to do um because it's better to go to, to an asteroid or a comet and measure it and then get done with theoretically i would love to bring samples back that would be the best thing so it's more important to get on that comet as it's traversing out close enough to our solar system yeah land on it get something off of it and come back and bring a physical sample home exactly which okay. is what yeah. we're trying to do with some of the future asteroid missions okay okay so we're going to wrap it up there for this uh, section but um we're going to be right back some more cosmic queries when we come back with star talk all stars Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Natalie Starkey. Still here with me is Chuck Nice and yes. Matt Taylor from the European Space Agency. Yes. We're going to carry on with some more cosmic queries. More cosmic queries, um, inquiries from the internet. That's my new song. <laughs> it's lovely. Yeah, my album drops on Tuesday. Thank you. <laughs> All right, here's the deal. Um, I lost the question I wanted to. Here it is. Okay. Graham Woolley. Graham Woolley okay. wants to know this. Why are plutoids made of different material than comets their origins are both trans-neptunian oh wow okay lots yeah. of lots this of is a guy who yeah he knows what he's talking this is a guy about. who read an article in scientific american i think so i'm telling you right now he knows his stuff okay <laughs> okay so let's break this down a little bit we've got the kuiper belt or the kuiper belt however you want to say this you know what's funny i you know of course doing this job here uh, uh i get to talk to a lot of scientists yep and i still don't know if it's kuiper belt or kuiper belt i think it's because i hear so many of you say it this, both ways i say kuiper you say kuiper matt what do you say I think I I oscillate. I think it's Kuiper. You're Kuiper. Okay. I think it's Dutch origin. So okay. So Kuiper. yeah. Okay. So Neil says Kuiper. You say Kuiper. Matt, you say Kuiper. But I know several uh, physicists Kuiper. who say Kuiper. Yeah, I think that's what Matt said. Qu yeah. Kuiper. Is, is, is yeah, Matt Kuiper so. too? Yeah. So I think I'm in the middle somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Always the politician, Matt. Look at you, the exactly. diplomat. The, 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 right. <laughs> All right. We, go ahead. We have the Kuiper Belt. This is kind of way out past Neptune in the solar system. Not as far as the Oort cloud, we also have comets, but the Kuiper Belt is important. There's a lot of comets there. Right. It's also where kind of Pluto happens to be. So um, we've got 
objects like Pluto. Now, the difference is that we've got objects like Pluto that are around and contain a lot of ice, but seem to look a bit like a planet. That's right. why Pluto used to be a planet. Used Unfortunately, no longer. Neil killed it. Yeah, he did. Right. Yeah, he killed it. Thanks, Neil. <laughs> then we have the comets, which are the remnants of the very earliest parts of the solar system, the, the remnants of this dust cloud that we started with. Right. They also contain a lot of ice. Right. Now, we still don't really understand where all of these objects came from and right. where exactly where they formed. Now, it's thought that we've got the Kuiper Belt, which is closer in, and the Oort Cloud, which is further away. We actually think that the Oort Cloud comets formed closer into the sun than the Kuiper Belt initially. Mm. And actually, they were so close to the sun that they, they kind of interacted with some of the inner planetary bodies mm -hmm. and were kicked way out of the solar system. Okay. So when we see them coming in to the inner solar system occasionally, and we can look at them with telescopes and even go to them with missions, um, we actually see their particular composition. And when we measure the ones from the Kuiper Belt, they're different. But then we've also got the Plutoids, which are another kind of family of objects out there. Right. The problem is they're all really far away and we don't go to them. You know, we've right. now with the New Horizons, of course, we have been out this far. Right. And uh, well, some other missions have been that far as well, but in specifically to look at these objects. Um, so we're still learning about them. So I kind of like can't answer the question that well. Matt, do you have anything to add? Because it's like we just we need to just learn more about these things. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's trying to constrain what you call a particular thing. And that's the thing. You start associating names to different objects. And, well, as you're alluding to, the Kuiper Belt and the Yord Cloud, um, when you look at uh, 67P with Rosetta, that's a, a Jupiter-class comet, likely from the, well, we, we call it a very a, a classic and a, a true Kuiper Belt object. We have other Jupiter-class comets that we've observed that have a completely different composition, if I relate to the deuterium to hydrogen ratios, which are kind of a, a proxy for this whole where were, where were they formed with respect to the sun in the early solar system. And what we found with Rosetta and also the Halley measurements with similar to 67P, showing a, a broad range of these D to H uh, ratios for a particular class of comets, which again mixes up your understanding of the dynamical processes and the evolution for those particular bodies. So it's a, a bit of a difficult mix. And when you say, right, okay, Kuiper Belt, Oort Cloud, that's the comets, and then we've got the Asteroid Belt, but then most, you know, in the last 10 or so years, people have started talking about main belt comets as well. So this classification of these small bodies in the solar system is becoming more and more diverse. Right. And I think they're all an intermix of everything. It's just their evolutionary processes or their evolutionary track has been very different. And by doing by doing New Horizons, by doing asteroid missions, we try and get a better idea of a one particular asteroid and how that fits into the global picture and all the, sim the massive simulations we're doing. So it's not an easy one to answer. We are learning. Yeah, we are. And, and I mean, Matt questions. mentioned the um, D to H ratios, which are really important for understanding these objects. And we can actually measure that in kind of on the object, um, mm -hmm. if we can get to it, or we can measure it with telescopes. Now, you're then comparing measurements made by different kinds of instruments. Yes. But what we're looking at is essentially the composition of the water or, or ice, water ice or liquid water, mostly ice. Right. Um, and we're looking at the heavy type of hydrogen, which is deuterium, in relation to the lighter type, which is hydrogen. And we're literally just looking at the the abundance of those two, two things. things and that tells us a lot about where we think that form all right so let me ask you both this uh, uh based on what we just talked about there um what would you rather have a physical rock sample of an asteroid or a chunk of ice from a comet 
So which one would you rather analyze? Matt, you can go first. Which would you prefer? I'll, I'll, we've had asteroids, so comet. We have to have a sample of a comet in in a lab on on Earth. As I as ice, though. That's a as ice. My part. That's my thing is yeah, before the yeah. In a big freeze. In a big freezer. A big okay. Freeze. So now, 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 let me ask you because that's a huge. Of, of course, we all see what happens when comets come into the solar system. They get close to the sun. They uh, start yeah. to. They do. And then they just kind of flame out. Yep. So now, how? I'm sure this is a stupid question because if we knew it, we there probably no would have done. There are no stupid questions. There are no stupid questions. I totally disagree with you. <laughs> when they say there are no stupid questions, I'm just like, you have not heard what I'm about to say. <laughs> so, no. Um, is there plans or a contingency or anything to actually break off a chunk of ice and get it back here? But how would you do that with... But, you know, how do you keep something cold enough yeah, I know. to get it back to Earth so that it doesn't evaporate and disintegrate once it gets, you know, on, the, a, on the journey? It's a massive challenge, and it, but it is something that most sample-based scientists are actively thinking about and trying to work on. Actually, the first place we want to try this is on the moon because we know we've got ice deposits at the poles of the moon. Oh. It's relatively close to us. We know we can get to the moon. We've done it lots of times. Yes. Um, and not saying it's easy, but... The challenge will be trying to collect some of these these ices from the poles and bring them back as ice. Because um, you can analyze there, you can go and analyze them with an instrument on on the moon. But ideally, we have we want to bring stuff back because we've got the best instruments on Earth. We've got right. the people, we've right. got the instruments, and we can make the best measurements. So and the best instrument of all is the tongue, <laughs> and you just have a little sip of the space water. See what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this is what we're trying to do. I think that's the first step. And okay. then, yeah, if we could bring about ice from a comet, that would answer some major questions about some of the solar system formation. Now, I say that, but the problem is all the comets, as we kind of alluded to, are all different. And we, although there's going to be groups of comets that are similar, going to one comet isn't actually going to answer all the questions. You know, it's going to help us, but we need to go to lots of them, which is a bit of a problem because it's You are it's very expensive. greedy, Natalie. I am greedy. Very greedy. Look at you. <laughs> we haven't landed on one, and you're like, oh, we got to get to 15 or 20 yeah, at least. So, yeah. Actually, just jumping in there, in 1987, when Rosetta was first thought about, that was actually a comet sample return. That yeah. was what it originated as. It was supposed to go to a comet and bring a bit back to Earth. Yeah. And that was shown to be quite, I mean, it was, uh, what we did anyway was quite extravagant. I think they were kind of going, look, look, just cut that bit because you're, you're, you're going crazy now. Uh, a lander, yeah, but not a lander, then come back again and then fly all the way back. It, it, it effectively was, uh, yeah. makes it like two missions. Um, so effectively doubles the cost because so, not only do you have to land, you've got to then launch again and get off the set. Fairly easy on a comet because there's not much gravity. But. However, the very encouraging and positive thing about this is we're halfway there. We, are. we got the first half of the mission done, thanks to Matt well, and his team, right? Yeah. We had to prove with Rosetta that we could land on one in the first place. So, you know, this is the thing. When we went to the moon and Mars, we did lots of orbiters. We did lots of surveying to decide where to land. Right. Whereas with Rosetta, we were doing all of this in one go. In 2014, when we arrived at the comet, we saw what it looked like for the yeah. first time. And yeah. then we had to land on it within six months. And that's so important that to stress. Anyway. Yeah, so that's really important that's to stress. We'd never seen this best. thing before. The moon, yeah. we've seen it. You know, it's right there. We can just look at it and we kind of know what it's what it looks like on the surface, what it's made of. Sweet. Um, but yeah, comets, we have no idea. We've never seen it before. So. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Graham Woolley, 
Uh, that was a woolly. Was a great question, it was my friend. Very, good. very nice. We got quickly. What's that? Add one thing. Go ahead. So you know, Go ahead, to Matt. sound like to try and bring this all in a little bit that we're not, we don't know anything about because we've got so many comments. <laughs> one of the key things with Rosetta is. Uh, and as you alluded to about uh, remote observations, the thing that we can uh, see these comets from the ground on Earth and also space-based and Hubble and, and, and other measurements like the Herschel Space Telescope, etc. By having Rosetta sitting there next to a comet and when we're observing it from the ground, it's kind of like a bootstrapping, a calibration of the ground-based observations. So when we do that cross-comparison between what we see in situ with what we see on the ground for 67P, we can then take those measurements and apply them to all the other cometary observations that we've ever made yeah. and we'll make a future. So it's a nice calibration effect so it's almost expands everything almost like we've been to more comets than that right exactly so, so yeah. yeah so everything that we've already observed yeah now we can re-observe exactly through the eyes of this new of rosetta and yeah. 67p yeah fantastic that's great Good stuff point, Matt. yeah that's great great point great point all right graham woolley way to go man that was a great question i love it when the when these people really uh think think very deeply about the questions they ask uh let's go to uh okay Hmm? Okay. Uh, Maria Macario. Oh, okay. Maria Macario, uh, who writes to us and says this from Facebook. When Rosetta flew by the asteroids 21 uh, Lutetia and 2867 Steins, what relevant information did it gather on them? Uh, P.S. I hope Chuck Nice doesn't mispronounce my name. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure he will. <laughs> well, she didn't say how we were to pronounce it. Well, this is true. Oh, we need phonetically. I screw then... up everybody's name, so you know. It sounded good to me. I hope so. And guess what? If if I said it wrong, you should change your name to Maria Macario. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right, so let's okay. talk about these other two asteroids that she said uh, on the flyby, um, 21 Lutetia and uh, 2867 Steins. Yep. Were we able to get any information yeah, from Yeah, we got loads of information. So we got loads of images um, of these things. I've never really seen them before. So, you know, beautiful images of asteroids up close, fairly close anyway. And um, I think also, Matt, am I right in saying we turned on some of the instruments um, just to have a little test to see that they were actually yes. going to work eventually um, and yeah. kind of sniffed, let's say we sniffed the... The uh, the asteroids is nice. that that's right, isn't it? Yeah, but I think I think we also ran some of the dust instruments, but they proved that there wasn't really a coma around these uh, objects. So yeah, there were there were null results, which are results. Yeah. So yeah, okay. definitely, we got lots of information. So there we go. Yeah. All right. There you go. Uh, my no, they were like bonuses to the to the puzzle because uh, yeah, that was icing was on the on, cake. On right? the way. That was on the way. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's like uh, it's like uh, you know, it's like car sex on the way home. Oh my goodness! Yeah, you know. It's just, um, we have time unexpected. for a very short question. Oh really? Yeah. I love when I make a joke and you can't see it, but Matt was laughing. And I, I'm just like, let's move cringing. on. And I'm like, it <laughs> says like car sex on the way home. You're like, oh my Next question. god! Matt is, <laughs> Matt, is, Matt is cracking the hell up. It's just, I love oh, it. I love. <laughs> <laughs> okay, really quick. Uh, what All right, let me find a quick, quick yeah. question. Quick, quick question. All right. Uh, this is Matt Eli from San Antonio, Texas, coming to us from Facebook. Why is the comet surface fluffy? Oh, no, I want longer. I'm going to have to make this really, really short. Okay, so 
The comet is essentially made of this early gas and dust from the solar nebula right. um, and ice, and it's kind of held together. So this this real dust is like the fluff of the solar system. It's it's not made it into a planet. So the planets kind of consolidated all this dust right. and made it solid like the planets. Um, but in the comets, it didn't because it was kind of a low energy environment out in the comet formation zone. Right. So this stuff stayed fluffy, a bit like candy floss kind of thing. So um, the surface of the comet is very much fluffy. As it goes via the sun, um, it loses all its ices as it's going and it loses a lot of material. This dust kind of comes off. It, it de dehydrates the surface of the comet. So because, it, because the surface of the comet was never compressed to the point where exactly, it could be... Yeah bound tightly exactly so gotcha. we have a fluffy surface and it's that's i love the i love this dust this right. is what i do but um and the other yeah. answer uh matt is cosmic fabric softener okay and we make okay that's <laughs> interesting okay so we are completely out of time and i wish we'd had longer for that yeah that, that was question. a lot of fun but, um, i gotta tell you that was a yeah lot i think we've learned quite a lot i have i've learned some stuff as well that's good yeah i'm, I'm sorry it was super cool to have matt here because yeah. i gotta tell you having somebody who was actually a part of the mission yeah I mean, I really learned a lot. This was fantastic. We are, we're very lucky to have him. But thank you so much, Matt. Um, you've been fantastic as always. Um, and I love your shirt. So that's cool. Didn't mention that. Um, but that's all we have time for. So, well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. We had good fun. So that's all we have time for today. I want to thank Matt Taylor from ESA, who's joined us, and Chuck Nice. And that was Star Talk All Stars. I am Dr. Natalie Starkey. This is Star Talk.